Last time we spoke about a major turning point of the Pacific War, the naval battle of Guadalcanal. Overall, the Americans lost two light cruisers, seven destroyers, 1,732 men, and 26 aircraft. The Japanese lost two battleships, one heavy cruiser, three destroyers, 10 transports, 1,895 men, and 41 aircraft. Henderson Field remained intact. The American position on Guadalcanal was much stronger, and the Japanese had concretely lost the strategic initiative. From this point on, the Japanese were certainly falling upon a defensive footing, and things would only grow more dire as the days wore on. The battle for Starvation Island was failing. The hunt for a decisive naval victory was also failing, and things on Green Hell were not going any better. Because while things went worse in other areas, this meant less resources for New Guinea. The sun was certainly setting on the Empire of the Rising Sun. And today, we're going to turn back over to Green Hell for an Allied offensive. This episode is the battle for Bunagona. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I just rolled out a series on many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal, and I'm now entering into the Warlord era for the history of China. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The direct aftermath of the naval battle of Guadalcanal saw the IGN coming to the realization the island of death by starvation was all but lost. The 17th Army, however, did not know they were basically being given up on. Meanwhile, the Americans now knew their grip on the island was very firm. As a staff officer to Singpak wrote, Now is the time to move in more supplies and relieve the tired marine amphibian troops. Disease, low rations, and battle fatigue were dulling the edge of the blade that was the 1st Marine Division. Plans to fully withdraw them and to replace them with army troops began rapidly. However, limited shipping was an issue. Halsey took the initiative on November the 16th when he placed control of the cargo discharge and the loading in Numea in the hands of the Navy's greatest enemy, the United States Army. Now all of these plans also meant it was time to enact the final destruction of the enemy still stuck on Starvation Island. Vandegrift sought to extend the American real estate upon the island past the Poha River. Thus, in the third week of November, he authorized a new offensive. The mission would fall on Brigadier General Seabury, who commanded the western sector of the American defensive perimeter. Seabury had the 164th Infantry, the 8th Marines, and two newly landed battalions of the 182nd Infantry. Patrols confirmed the Japanese had not yet reoccupied their former lines along the Matanikau. Seabreeze sought to launch his offensive in two steps. 
Step number one, to send two new battalions of the 182nd Infantry across the Matanikau to secure the territory to its west and to the south. Step number two would be to push an attack with all three regiments in a drive towards Poha. On November the 18th, engineers created a bridge across the Matanikau under the cover of the 8th Marines. Then Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Tomley took his 2nd Battalion, 182nd Infantry over. By noon, the men reached Hill 66 only to see a small patrol clash costing just two lives. The following morning, Lieutenant Colonel Francis McGowan's 1st Battalion of the 182nd Infantry crossed the Matanikau and marched just southwest of Point Cruz, while the 8th Marines guarded the inland flank. Around 400 yards west of the Matanikau, the 1st Battalion received its baptism under fire from a small Japanese unit just east of Point Cruz. McGowan's men dug in a 700-yard line from the beach to Hill 78, settling in for the night. Colonel Yoshitsugu Sakai's 16th Infantry Regiment were the ones opposing McGowan. Sakai had 700 men, backed up with just a few anti-tank guns and motors, and he dug in along a 400-yard-wide coastal corridor. To their south, just 2,000 yards, was the 1st Battalion of the 228th Infantry and the 124th Infantry, who were holding a defensive line extending to Mount Austin. During the night of November the 19th, the Japanese prodded McGowan's men using infiltration tactics. They pounded their left flank with artillery and motor fire, pressing McGowan's men to brace against Hill 78, but they stood their ground firmly. Artillery and aerial support allowed the men to push the next day west of Point Cruz. The Japanese desperately retaliated using artillery and motor fire, but the thrust sealed off many Japanese at Point Cruz. Seabury then sent the 164th to march between the two battalions of the 182nd to prepare for step number two. After sunset on November the 20th, the two battalions of the 182nd extended, and the 164th held a line linking up hills 82, 83, and 84. On the morning of November the 21st, the Japanese struck the 164th with artillery, but were unable to stop them from advancing westward another 100 yards. On the 22nd, Seabree then sent the 8th Marines to join the action at Hill 83. On November the 23rd, one army and two Marine artillery battalions alongside the Cactus Air Force began battering the Japanese, including the command post of the 17th Army. Ayakotake was slightly injured as a result. Major Nishiyama, acting commander of the 228th Infantry, was waiting in dugouts when they surprised the approaching Americans with machine gun fire and a hell of a lot of grenades, forcing a halt to the attack by the 23rd. The Americans dug in along a line from Point Cruz to Hill 66, and a stalemate emerged that would last for over six weeks. Though it was just a six-day struggle, the offensive saw a lot of casualties. The 164th Infantry lost 47 killed, and the 182nd added another 45. The 8th Marines had 42 dead, bringing a total death toll of 134. Japanese losses remain undocumented, but they were most likely less than that of the Americans. Now, as things were drawing to a stalemate west of the Matanikau, other events were unfolding on Green Hell. Before I begin, and I think this is the first time I've ever done this, I just want to bring up kind of an issue with writing this part of the story. What we're about to talk about is known as the Battle for Bunangona. It involves Americans and Australian troops attacking multiple places simultaneously. Now, I hope as many of you should know, I am not the guy who writes all the Pacific War episodes over on the YouTube channel. All the episodes related to the Bunangona thus were written by another writer. 
this battle takes weeks, if not months. All the sources make it extremely confusing to tell. Because logically, whenever you take on these stories uh, telling battles or events or campaigns, you usually would do one area at a time and go from start to conclusion. But unfortunately, here at the Pacific War, week by week, we got some issues. I have, at this point, written weeks in advance, far ahead, and I have concluded the Battle for Bunagona as I'm recording this. And I found myself having the same issue as our other writer who did the YouTube episodes. I even talked to him. We had the same sources, it seems. And as a result, and why I'm even talking about this, there's going to be a lot of repeating. So I just want to admit it might be a bit jarring, and I hope you can be a bit patient with all the materials related to Bunagona. In a more perfect world, I would have abandoned the week-by-week -week format for this one to just try and tell the story from beginning to end in conclusion per area separately. But that's not how we did it. For those of you who watch YouTube episodes, at least you got the map to help you with the multiple areas being hit for countless weeks. Over here on this podcast, you're going to hear about the same places, the same people, and probably the same actions a few times over. It's going to feel like deja vu a bit, but I did my best to try and make it very entertaining and to tell the stories of the men that lived it because there are some really, really compelling stories and a lot of diary entries that just show the hardship on both sides. Anyways, without further ado, this is going to be the beginning of the Bonagona Offensive. The recent losses at Oifi Garari and Guadalcanal forced the IJ to reorganize the Southern Expeditionary Army on November the 16th to try and save the deteriorating situation on New Guinea and Guadalcanal. The 8th Area Army was created, led by General Imamura, who had overseen the conquest of the Dutch East Indies. Under his command and supervision would be General Haikatake's 17th Army, who from then on would only operate in the Solomons area, while the newly established 18th Army, led by Lieutenant General Adachi Hatazo, would take over operations on New Guinea. Adachi's primary task was to provide a successful defense of the Bunagona area while Imamura and Haikotake would be working towards capturing Guadalcanal. The 17th Army still believed victory could be had on Guadalcanal, but the IGN basically had completely given up on it. General MacArthur had built up a grand counteroffensive that was finally ready to launch. Oh yes, Dougie's back. I got a lot to say about Mr. Dougie. General MacArthur believed the Japanese would be capable of deploying around 80,000 troops in the South Pacific if they regained air superiority in the region. Now, MacArthur could have chosen to perform a war of attrition, starving the enemy out on New Guinea, which would have been less costly, i.e. cost less allied lives, and honestly, it would have been the right decision, but MacArthur wanted a quicker victory. And there's a reason why. This is because MacArthur wanted to take full command of the Pacific War to drive towards Tokyo. To explain further, basically MacArthur wanted to complete the New Guinea campaign before the Navy won the Guadalcanal campaign, because this would give him the chance to become the overall commander during the rest of the drive towards Tokyo. It's the old service rivalry at work. For those of you who know your World War II history, it's basically like General Patton and Montgomery racing to Berlin to become the quote-unquote first person to finally end the war. And just like that story, MacArthur's decision to rush this entire campaign led to unnecessary losses of lives for the Allies. 
Now, alongside, you know, the narcissism of MacArthur just wanting to be the overall commander, there was also this need to be able to be in control of the drive towards Tokyo because he believed he could drive it towards the Philippines on the way. Because let us not forget, I shall return was his speech to the Philippines. Remember that one, it will come up in the future. MacArthur alongside General Blamey were planning on making a wide envelopment to the east by flying American forces from Major General Edwin Harding's 32nd Division to hit the enemy's left flank at Buna. Now going a bit back in time, October saw the 2nd Battalion of the 126th Regiment marching up the Jari Trail. When they came to the Owen Stanley Range, malaria, dysentery, and other diseases began to wear them down. Meanwhile, the 128th Regiment was flown to Wanagela, from which they sailed up the coast towards Pangani, where they began to construct an airstrip. The 126th Regiment would eventually be flown up to Pangani to join the secret flanking offensive. Now on the other side, the South Seas Force were stalling the Australians' offensive along the Kokoda Track, as the engineers and laborers prepared the defenses at Buna, Gona, and San Nananda. They had occupied these territories since July, and a network of defenses were established over the northern coastal strips of land. The road to San Nananda ran over swamp country, and the engineers constructed hundreds of bunkers using coconut palm logs and compacted earth, reinforced with 44-gallon drums filled with earth. Some of the lucky bunkers received concrete and steel reinforcing, and all the bunkers were covered with earth, rock, and other parts for camouflage. The landscape was a fetid swampland, with small scattered patches of firm ground where the bunkers were built upon. Approaching troops would have to wade through swamps or cross open grasslands to get to these concealed bunkers. The bunkers also had crawl trenches joining them all, giving the defenders a vast network with lateral covering fire. To add an extra layer of protection, heavily camouflaged snipers held positions in treetops. The downside of this, of course, was more mosquitoes and thus more malaria. It was rampant all the way up to the northern beaches, and the grasslands held mites that carried scrub typhus. In the absence of General Hori, whose fate at that point was still unknown, command of the defenses of Bunagona was under Colonel Yokoyama. The sick and wounded came to field hospitals every day at Gona and Girua from the Kokoda Tracks actions. There were simply not enough carriers. So those unable to walk or commit suicide were shot by their comrades. By November, the hospital at Girua held 2,000 patients. Huts could not be built fast enough to keep pace with the arrivals, and many men simply lay on straw mats along the road or within the jungles. Though the area was safe from the offensive for now, they were not safe from Allied air raids, and they became so numerous it was almost only safe to work at night. Medicine was running out and countless men were dying of starvation. Many of the men's stomachs had been damaged from eating tree shoots, grass, and caked earth. So much so that they could not digest food any longer, and they died agonizing deaths while vomiting blood. Ashes from the dead of New Guinea were sent back to Japan, but by late November this was no longer a possibility. Abuna bodies were simply left lying about, gradually rotting away, as the living no longer had the strength to bury their dead. Colonel Yokoyama's defense of Bunagona consisted of the 3rd Battalion of the 41st Regiment at Gurua, the 5th Yokozuka SNLF Marines led by Captain Yasuda Yoshihatsu, 900 engineers, and the remnants of the Tsuikoika unit, who had survived the picnic adventure on Good Enough Island. All of these forces were at Buna, and 800 men of the 
Takasago Volunteer Road Construction Unit were at Gona. Now this unit is rather interesting. One major Tsunichi Yamamoto was in charge of them. They were made up mostly of Formosans. They were volunteers who worked as carriers and laborers, and they were used to mountain and jungle life, making them very capable on New Guinea. They were very loyal and hardworking, and as I have mentioned before, there were countless Japanese who complained the Korean laborers would often eat most of the rice that they carried up the Kokoda track to the front. But countless Formosans were said to have been found dead of starvation lying beside bags of unopened rice on the Kokoda track. Lieutenant Richi Inagaki, a paymaster, had this to say. Formosans were excellent workers. While the Korean volunteers were attracted by the high rates of pay, they were lazy, shiftless, and a thieving lot. The Formosans were paid less at the request of the Formosan colonial administration to avoid spoiling them for the future. The word Takasago had been a generic Japanese expression for indigenous Formosans since their colonization by Japan that began almost 50 years prior. The term was not disparaging. It was more akin to how Australians use the word Kiwis for New Zealanders. The Formosan workers held legendary status amongst Japanese veterans. Alongside the Takasago volunteers at Gona were 69 members of the Soda Detachment. With so many of his forces ill or non-combatants, Yokoyama knew his defensive options were extremely limited. It was going to be a desperate defensive operation until reinforcements arrived and they had nowhere to withdraw to. An edict was issued to the men of the 41st saying this. It is not permissible to retreat even a step from each unit's original defensive position. I demand that each man fight until the last. All the men, combatants and non-combatants, would have to fight for their very lives. Yokoyama added this to his order. Those without firearms or sabers must be prepared to fight with sharp weapons, such as knives or bayonets tied to sticks, or with clubs. Now that is some desperation. Now the Formosans held a warrior culture using curved bladed hunting knives similar to what their headhunter ancestors had used once upon a time. Many were given guns to look out for the enemy as they had good ears and instincts for jungle and mountain fighting. By November the 16th, three luggers and a Japanese barge had been captured at Milna Bay and they were being spotted by Japanese lookouts just 15 kilometers south of Buna unloading cargo and supplies in Oro Bay. One of these boats had General Edwin Harding aboard it, preparing his Buna assault. The little boats only had machine guns to protect them, and they were attacked by 18 Zeros who lit four aircraft ablaze, forcing Harding and many others to jump overboard and swim ashore. Over 24 men were killed. Meanwhile, Japanese reinforcements arrived further up the Papuan coast. Aboard five destroyers, Altogether, 1,000 troops were being led by Colonel Shigemi Yamamoto, who was taking command of the 144th Regiment. A second echelon of 500 men landed at Buna, carried by three other destroyers. The arrivals were battle-hardened veterans of the China War, the 229th Regiment. Captain Yasada Yoshihatsu deployed the 229th Regiment on his eastern flank with the SNLF Marines protecting Buna Village. Yamamoto's line of defense thus ran through the Duropa plantation to the airstrips and across the bridge between them without post covering its approaches. At this point, the 41st and the 144th regiments were withdrawing from Gurari, 
over the Sanananda track, taking up positions on the way to Gurawa. Colonel Yazawa's 1st Battalion made its way to the mouth of the Kamusi River to take some barges to get to Gurawa, but Allied aircraft attacked the barges, resulting in only 500 soldiers, including Yazawa, getting to Gurawa by November the 29th. The rest of the battalion were forced to march by foot towards Gona. In hot pursuit of the Japanese forces was the 7th Division of General Vesey, who crossed the Kamusi River on November the 16th while two of his brigades advanced on separate parallel tracks. Brigadier Lloyd's 16th Brigade made their way to the sea at Sanananda Point, while the 25th Brigade of Brigadier Ether marched further left towards Gona. Harding was supposed to be making his way, but the zero attack meant he had to now rely on airdrops for his men, while the new airfield at Dobodura was being constructed for surface transport. By November the 18th, the 128th Regiment advanced to Hariko and Simemi, while the bulk of the 126th Regiment went to Inanda to protect the eastern flank of the Australians. Their mission was to seize Buna as quickly as possible, and luckily their scouts reported that the Buna garrison looked to be quite weak. The Allies began their offensive at Buna on November the 19th, and the troops had to suffer torrential rain during their march. 700 men of the American Warren Force advanced along the coast through swamp and jungle lands towards Cape Indander. The men were told they would be facing disease-ridden and starving survivors of the Owen Stanley Range, but what they actually found were fresh Japanese troops, well-fed and armed. The Americans were ill-prepared for jungle warfare. The foliage made their motors very ineffective. The forward troops received heavy casualties by machine gun fire from very well camouflaged posts. The source of the gunfire was hard to determine because the Japanese machine guns and Arisaka rifles emitted no flash and the sound reverberated in the jungle. American engineer Major Porter recalled, Our troops were pinned down everywhere by extremely effective fire. It was dangerous to show even a finger from behind one's cover, as it would immediately draw a burst of fire. The Japanese would often allow the forward units to pass by before opening fire to exact maximum carnage. American units from the 1st and 3rd Battalions of the 32nd Division attempted to move down the Sememi track between the airstrips, but were met with intense fire on the wooden causeway forcing them to a halt. Many of them were pushing through waist and chest-deep oozing swamp alongside the Sememi Creek, thus they were only able to carry light weapons. The defenders' camouflage bunkers allowed the Japanese to cut them down with machine gun fire. It was a horrible experience for the Americans in the swamp, Grenades got wet while the Japanese were free to lob theirs at will upon them. A third of the American forward patrol were killed. The defenders, troops of the 229th, suffered some bad casualties as well, as they faced an enemy just 20 meters away. General MacArthur was so frustrated by the lack of progress, he ordered the storming of Buna's defenses, stating this. All columns will be driven through to objectives regardless of losses. Artillery and aerial bombing opened up the Allied push, and during the morning, the Americans tried to storm down the coastal road but came under heavy fire from snipers and camouflage bunkers, until they were forced to turn back. MacArthur was livid, and he gave the same order again on the 21st to General Harding, adding this. Take Buna today, at all costs. MacArthur. The assault was becoming an embarrassment. After a morning aerial bombing, there was supposed to be a ground offensive, but the frontline commanders were not notified. 
One of the American bombers dropped bombs on Allied forward positions, killing four men to add insult to injury. No ground offensive occurred that morning. Harding requested a second aerial strike at midday, but one only got around in the afternoon and most of the bombers could not find any targets. A-20s dropped bombs into the sea and B-25s bombed the U.S. front lines, killing another six friendlies. The American ground forces were pretty unnerved, to say the least. Many of the officers had to order the men back to the line. Most of the forces were equipped with light weapons, ineffective motor shells, handset radios that didn't work in the jungle, and they faced heavily defended Japanese positions untouched by Allied bombing. A few machine gun pits fell, but at the cost of countless American lives. One Australian company ordered to take the first of the airstrips with the Americans got within 60 meters of it, but the Americans apparently refused to advance and the Australians were forced to pull back. Over at the Buna government station, Yasuda's naval troops faced an advance by the Urbana force, who were marching through knee-deep swamp. The Urbana force got bogged in those swamps as their motor shells got wet and their machine guns became clogged with mud. They were forced to spend a long, miserable night standing in watery ooze, waiting for first light so they could move again as they had become desperately lost. By the fourth day, the Urbana force had made no progress and their HQ was accidentally strafed by friendly aircraft. The men would dig foxholes, only to see them fill up with water and they were unable to get past the intense Japanese machine gun fire. The Japanese manning the bunkers were surprised to find the enemy advancing where they were, but they enjoyed superior numbers and drove them right back into the swamps. The American weapons just kept jamming, they could do little, as they pulled back many left their useless guns. A series of miscommunications led the Urbana force to start withdrawing on the morning of the 25th, despite an order to remain on some Kunai flat. Meanwhile, the Warren force had reorganized and set up better observation points for their artillery. Harding had decided tanks were necessary and he requested three stewards to be brought up from Milna Bay, but there was no available transports. When they finally got their hands on a barge, it capsized, taking a tank down with it into Milna Bay. On November the 26th, an offensive was made without tank support and the Allied force quickly got pinned down by Japanese fighters coming out of Ley, who strafed them. On November the 30th, both the Urbana and Warren forces were ordered to attack again. The Urbana forces advanced in the pre-dawn to the front lines where they met machine gun pits and snipers. A few outer bunkers were overrun and the advancing unit almost penetrated Buna village. The Warren Force hit the outposts in the Daropa Plantation, but even with artillery support, they could make no progress. The Japanese only lost a crossing over the Suwari Creek, just west of Buna Village. Land communication between Girua and Buna was cut as a result, though. The daily pattern at Buna, going into December, was largely one of Japanese holding their positions and the Allies making little to no progress. By the end of November, the Japanese defensive lines were pretty much undented. But the Japanese had nowhere to go. All they could do was defend. There was nowhere to withdraw to except for the sea. Thus, they faced a war of attrition they would eventually lose. Air attacks by both sides increased. On the 22nd, 24 Japanese fighters and bombers engaged 14 Allied fighters over Buna. Then two days later, bombers raided Dobodura airfield. On the 26th, aircraft sank an Allied transport. And again on the 28th. The American ground forces were fighting in unsanitary swamp conditions. Food and ammunition were running low. By the end of November, 492 Americans were dead or wounded. Countless had malaria, dysentery, and scrub typhus. 
Now, the first two weeks of the Muna Offensive saw many green American units facing battle-hardened Japanese veteran troops. Elsewhere, the defenders were non-combatants, or survivors of the Kokoda Track. Gona was defended almost entirely by non-combatants, except for the 11th Company of the 41st Regiment, 68 men led by Lieutenant Jiro Soda. Soda was a popular and respected junior officer who had risen through the ranks from private. He constantly said this to his men, to boost their morale, especially during times of hardship when they faced hunger. If I die, eat my body, and keep on fighting. As his superior, Yokoyama said ironically he always looked far too skinny to eat. On paper, the Australians assigned to seize Gona held a vastly superior force. They had trained men who had battle experience, albeit from the Middle East. Not exactly the same climate, but still battle-hardened nonetheless. However, these men also had to ford the Owen Stanley Range, and they were extremely fatigued and the supply lines were stretched. The Japanese road laborers at Gona fought ferociously from their bunkers. They picked off Australians wading through the swamps or the kunai grass. One group of Japanese were eating near a lone tree when the first Australian advance patrol appeared on November the 19th. The Japanese fled as the Australians fired upon them, but the Japanese fled right into a kill zone, leading the Australians to be gunned down by machine guns and rifle fire in some heavy kunai field. The first day saw the Australians lose 32 men, and they were forced to pull back 3 kilometers. The Australian rations were running low, and they waited two days in torrential rain for fresh supplies. Then they renewed their attack. They hit this time from the south but they were quickly pinned down in some cut-down kunai grass fields. Some managed to get to the Japanese front lines, close enough to toss grenades into their pits and through the bunker firing slits, but the attack was too weak to break through. The attacks withdrew under heavy fire, carrying their wounded back through the swamps. One advanced unit tried to attack from the east, but was met by Japanese snipers and had to turn back. The next day, the Australians applied the same tactic with the exact same results. Troops moved through kunai patches and swamps, and they were cut down by machine gun fire, and those who cut east to the coconut grove, they were met by sniper fire. Casualties were high. By the end of the 23rd, over 200 Australians had been killed or wounded at Gona. Countless others were becoming sick. General Vasey wired his immediate commander, General Edmund Herring, the Jap won't go till he is killed, and in the process he is inflicting many casualties on us. I am beginning to wonder who will reach zero first. The Japanese set up traps, cutting down palm trees and leaving them in the line of fire so they could pick off attacks tempting to use them as cover. Just like at Buna, the defenders at Gona had nowhere to withdraw. They could hold out for now, but once the Allies figured out a way to crack their walls, their fate was all but sealed. The Allies tried to press their air forces to strafe and bomb some more. Wearways would raid the Japanese defenses and help guide artillery, but it was not very effective because of all the camouflage. On the 24th, Gona received 80 reinforcements, an infantry unit led by Lieutenant Yamazaki, which included two Jukis that deployed on the southern perimeter where the Australian motor attacks were the strongest. The Australian situation was not improving. Day after day, artillery and motor bombardments would be followed up with ground assaults that made little to no gain. Sometimes artillery fired short, hitting Australian positions. All the time, barges were coming and going on the Guna beachfront. 
On the 28th, the Australian battalion advanced further east to the village of Banumi, also referred to as Cemetery Village. Some non-combatants were assigned to its garrison. The village had been molded into a satellite citadel with well-positioned and well-defended firing posts. The Australian patrols who first approached it took heavy casualties and reported back, It's a hornet's nest of concealed positions. The entire Australian battalion peppered the village with motors and rifle fire. Japanese defenders initially were able to repel the attack, and an Australian unit bayonet charged a gun pit resulting in them all getting gunned down. Then the Australian front line withdrew a bit to allow a second motor barrage, which devastated the defenders. A machine gun pit was hit and its defenders were shot as they ran for cover. With many of the Japanese defenders reeling from the barrage, the Australians advanced under the cover of smoke and then at night without giving pause. The defenders were gradually killed. Many of them tried to escape to the beaches and they were shot down by patrols. The next day saw more artillery and motor barrages, and the few surviving defenders knew it was hopeless, and they tried to make a break for it, with some trying to swim out to sea. There was nowhere to swim, however, and they were shot dead in the waters. Those who fled into the jungles, they fared better. Some managed to sneak out. Thus, Cemetery Village was cleared, and it earned its nickname. While Bunami was seized, the defenders at Gona held firm, they were met with heavy aerial bombing from A-20s and B-17s. Over 300 500-pound bombs and parachute bombs were dropped on Japanese positions killing countless defenders including Yamazaki. The Australian advance came down the beach and through the coconut palms, but yet again they were met with intense Japanese machine gun fire from bunkers and snipers from treetops. The Australians managed to get a toehold along the beach, but Gona was holding strong still. The defenders were only a few hundred, and diarrhea was running rampant amongst them. Corpses were everywhere, and they could not go out to bury them. Thus many slept side by side with the dead. The stench became so bad, many defenders put on their gas masks. One Japanese soldier, unable to stand it anymore, used his big toe to pull the trigger on his rifle, blowing the top of his head off. The Allies had expected a quick victory over the Bunagona area, and they were terribly mistaken. Though their victory was inevitable, instead of performing a less costly war of attrition, General MacArthur pushed them to try and rapidly seize the area. Casualties were enormous for the Allied forces, and one can't help but think how many of those Allied losses could have been thwarted given better leadership at the top. Both the attackers and defenders were being tossed into a meat grinder but ultimately, it was the defenders who had nowhere to run to and very little hope of ever being evacuated by their comrades. I'd like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I just released a series on many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal, and am now releasing a seven-part series on the Warlord Era of China. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The battle for Bunagona had only just begun. 
General MacArthur, out of a desire to take the leadership position in the Pacific, pushed the Allied offensive against Bunagona instead of waging a proper war of attrition, costing more American and Australian lives than he should have. Green Hell was being made even worse. <laughs>